That's a good sign. <laughs> See, I'm getting better at this thing. <laughs> Welcome. Glad you guys are here. What a joy to be together. Um, I, I, what a week, huh? It's, it's, it's been a hot minute since we've had a cold snap like that. And I know, really quick, I know that some of you are winter haters, slash what I would call fun haters, and that you were miserable in the snow, and I get it, and I, look, I'm not being insensitive, I understand, for, especially for people who are more at risk, cold snaps are actually a very dangerous thing, I get it, but man, I just love, I just love snow, there's just something so Jesus-y about that, that moment in the morning, and in, in your yard is sparkling, and everything's so quiet, and you have a good excuse to cancel all your meetings in the day. You guys know what I'm talking about. I, I love it. I really do. I mean, obviously, we, we acknowledge the, the real hardships that weather creates for people. But I really do. I try, and, I try to allow myself to fully experience these sorts of weeks as much as I can. I, I feel like they, they really drive my prayer life, my devotional life in, in unique ways. Uh, so hopefully you had a similar experience. Hopefully you're not one of the fun haters that's just biding your time until it's muggy and 90 degrees for no good reason. Um, by the way, gr great reminder that this last week we did start the Lenten season. I'd love, I'd love, it sounds wild, I'd love to hear from you guys how God is meeting you in this season. We sent out some, some resources, some encouragements for you guys to engage in this. I would love to hear from you how God is meeting you in this time as we prepare for Easter. And you don't have to, but if you want to shoot me a text or an email and just tell me of God's faithfulness and the creative ways you're engaging him. I'd, I'd love for us to be able to maybe a little closer to Easter, just share some testimonies of God's goodness, um, which is just another great reminder to come to Revive Wednesday night. We have plenty of seats left. It will be a wonderful night just for prayer, worship, reflection. Uh, I think it'll be a really good way to help mentally, emotionally uh, push us toward kind of preparation for the Easter season. So we would love to see you guys Wednesday night, seven o'clock in this space. Uh, if you're able to do that. Today, however, we are continuing our series in Acts. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, we're going to be continuing. I'm excited to jump into this. We're, we're essentially finishing out the narrative of Stephen's martyrdom but by talking about the practical effect that this has on the church and ultimately on the advancement of the kingdom of God. I, th I think this is going to be just a good time for us to, to kind of reflect on something that will hopefully, I think, engage our prayer life, our thought life, our devotional life in the coming week. And, and, and the reason is simply this, beloved, persecution and suffering, as we've seen already in the text and as we will continue to see, especially this afternoon, simply cannot defeat the church. It is Jesus' church. It is his bride. It is his kingdom. And he will advance his kingdom regardless of how opposed it is. But I love that texts like this, they remind us that the primary mechanism God uses to advance his kingdom, it really is everyday believers like you and me sharing the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ wherever we go and as we go. And no persecution has, will, or can stop that. In fact, we're going to see that God, God wastes 
no suffering, but rather uses it to rocket the gospel out into the world. In short, I've been kind of saying a lot, speaking around this. In short, we're going to talk today about the Christian's relationship with suffering. I think it's going to be good for us, hopefully a little challenging for some of us, but I think this is going to be a fruitful discussion. I think it's going to be a gift for us. So let's, let's jump into this text, read it together, and then we'll talk a little more. This is Acts chapter 8, starting in the first verse, we read this. And Saul approved of his execution, him being Stephen, what we're picking up in the middle of a narrative. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds who were one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw that the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And this, beloved of Jesus, is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me. Fathers, we take a few minutes to dig into your word. We ask humbly that you would be with us. Holy Spirit, we know that you are present. We know that you, you come together with the church when we gather. We know that you speak through your word. We know that you indwell believers. We know that you, you love to convict and remind and teach. And so, God, we just ask that you would do that ministry for us in this space right now. We ask that you would be our discipler, that you would illuminate the text to us, that you would draw us to the truth and the life that we need today. Give us soft, tender hearts, open eyes and ears to receive from you what we need to receive. Give us humble hearts ready to repent. Give us joyful, hopeful hearts ready to move forward into what you have for us. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, Here's what I'd like to do with this text today. We're going we're gonna to look at the actual narrative here. I don't know if you noticed. This is a significantly shorter text than we engaged last week when I read for 30 minutes straight before we talked about anything. Uh, we're we're going to look at the actual narrative, what happens here in the actual story. But I think that's going to lead us to four truths about suffering that we've seen in the Acts narrative so far. We're going to go through each one of those, and then we'll end our time with kind of a teaching, encouragement, and challenge from Peter's first letter to the church, and then we'll take communion in our response time. Sound good? Awesome. So structurally, this is the transition from one chunk of Acts to the next. We're really beginning the transition away from the Jerusalem church to the larger Gentile church and the larger church movement in the world. At the very beginning of this, we talked about how Acts is really divided up about narratives that have to do with the Jerusalem church and the narratives that kind of come out of the Antioch church, kind of representing the mother church, the the original, much more Jewish church, and then the larger world movement in the Gentile church. So we're starting that transition. It's going to go back and forth a little bit before it just fully pushes itself over to the larger world movement, but we're, we're beginning to move away from Jerusalem. Narratively, 
This happens by ending out the story of Stephen's martyrdom and then kind of in the following action of, of, of this story in Stephen's death, it creates this bridge into the next chapter of the story of God's church. So what actually happens here is that Stephen is killed by an angry mob. We're told of this, this young rabbi, as our text begins, who apparently approved of his death. He was smart enough to avoid throwing stones himself, but he, but he definitely is a part of this murder. Luke wants us to see the responsibility this young man bears in this time in the life of the church. Because the, the anger, rage, jealousy, and violence that has been stewing under the surface in Jerusalem has finally boiled over, and we see the first persecution of the church. Now that, now that outright physical violence has been used with no real repercussions, remember it was not actually lawful for the Sanhedrin to kill anyone. They didn't have the power of execution. The church is, is beginning to get scattered around Jerusalem because the Jewish leaders are realizing they can live out their violent desires against God's church with no real repercussions. Luke uses this really intense language here that lets us know that most of the church is forced to leave Jerusalem. It says only the 12 apostles remained behind. Now, understand, right, that, that's, a, that's a figure of speech. It's not like the church went from 3,000 to 12 people and just stayed like that forever. A, a lot of the people that left Jerusalem were able to come back kind of once things died down, and some most likely didn't leave at all. They just hunkered down and hid, but, but we're supposed to see the, extre like the, the extreme nature of this persecution. The, the church in Jerusalem remained alive and well, as we will see as the story carries on. But the image here is stark. What was it? What was a day-by-day, life-on-life, vibrant fellowship of thousands of people who were sharing resources and encouragement and discipleship and worship just a few days ago is now a few dozen people meeting secretly in homes and hiding. And, and guys, I'm serious when I say this. I want you to, I want you to put yourself in the place of an early church member here. Imagine this experience, the shift from joy to sorrow, from flourishing to suffering. It happened really quickly. Imagine what that was like. One week you're experiencing the power of the Spirit, the fellowship of the church, the, the present love of real, deep discipleship. You're worshiping in the temple and learning and seeing God do amazing things. Then, then seemingly, overnight, everything changes. You can no longer meet in the temple. People are being arrested and beaten and having property seized and being killed. Your friends leave town. Your discipler leaves town. The, the family you were sharing meals with leaves town. And you hear about this rabbi who's literally going from house to house, knocking down doors and arresting followers of Jesus for, for no other crime than following Jesus. What an intense time. What a stark contrast from such a high to such a low. Verse 2 gives us this, this haunting contrast. As the church is taking Stephen's body and giving it a godly burial, which, which by the way, really quick, was in its, like, in its own right a dramatic and dangerous thing to do for the church, because those who were stoned for blasphemy were not allowed to be buried or mourned. 
So the believers choosing to do this are really putting targets on their back by, by, by kind of publicly showing that Stephen's martyrdom was not, in fact, just or right or good. But while they're doing this, the text tells us that Saul is taking mobs of goons around the city and illegally rounding up Christians for arrest and mistreatment. I mean, it's an intense scene. I don't know if you are like me, but I am so ingrained, like it's so in my being to avoid suffering. I so deeply equate suffering with loss and lack of suffering as somehow like an aspect of success that just reading this story puts me on edge. I mean, how could things go so horribly wrong so quickly? I mean, look at this. Things were so beautiful. They were so, they were so Jesus-y. They were so wonderful. Just a few chapters ago, thousands of people were getting saved. Miracles were happening. The church were serving one another. They were living in deep community, and now they're suffering, hurting, scattered, and isolated. It's like, it's like everything that made them a church all of a sudden falls apart. I don't know if you feel that with me. But that's intense. And it's important to remind ourselves that it might feel like everything that made them a church all of a sudden fell apart, but the reality is it didn't. It didn't. Look how the text continues. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Wait, what? What? The text moves past the persecution in like one sentence. It goes straight back to the kingdom of God advancing. The reason is wonderful, and we have to talk about it for a minute. You see, guys, all those those wonderful things, community, discipleship, miracles, signs, fellowship, church life, these were not the defining characteristics of the church. The church is about the risen Jesus Christ and his indwelling spirit, and no persecution can crush that. So this church, and it's important to say this, beloved, our brothers and sisters, they lose all of this in a matter of days. And as they scatter, they immediately, immediately begin preaching the gospel afresh wherever they end up. Because the trappings of church life are not church life. The risen Christ is church life. Can we sit in that for a moment? They lose all the earthly trappings of church life, but they still have Jesus. So they scatter and they preach the gospel. Now the story zooms in on Philip for a moment. Philip was another one of the seven these Hellenistic believers who were part of the the proto-deacons, right, who were appointed to wait tables for the widows in the church. We're actually going to follow his ministry for the next few weeks, but it kicks off here wonderfully. Just like Stephen, we find out that Philip's ministry is more than simply waiting tables, although it's important to say that it was never less than waiting tables. He, He leaves Jerusalem and heads into Samaria and preaches the gospel there. The Spirit moves through him to cast out demons, to deliver people from spiritual oppression, to heal physical maladies. And this gives the people pause, and the gospel begins to take root 
amongst the Samaritans. Now, if you don't know this part of the story, that's fine. Samaria is the land directly north of Judea. It's part of the larger Roman province of Palestine, but it represents kind of culturally and even a little bit geographically some of the remnants of the northern kingdom of Israel. Which, if you don't know this part of the story, again, it's, it's, it's totally cool. But if you go back Old Testament times, the ancient nation of Israel, they, they suffered a pretty brutal civil war that split the nation in half, the southern kingdom of Judah, Judah the northern kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes and three tribes. And you're like, that's more than 12. You'll have to look that part up and figure it out on your own. But what happened was when God allowed both nations to be conquered and destroyed because of their breaking of the covenant, what happened afterward was really different. You see, the southern kingdom of Judah, even though they were scattered and they were exiled and spread over the world, they were actually able to keep themselves pretty ethnically pure and they avoided intermarrying for the most part and they were able to keep their cultural heritage so that several generations later when their oppressors allowed them to go back and repopulate the land of Judea, most of the southern tribes could really still identify their Jewish heritage and their history and who they were. But the northern tribes were forced to intermarry and forced to mingle and mix a lot more, and their generations and genealogies were lost. So when those people come back and inhabit the northern areas of Samaria, even though they identify as Jewish people, they can't prove their Jewish heritage, and it sparked this multi-generation, deep-abiding hatred between the people of Samaria and the people of Judea. And if that's wild to you, uh, it should be wild to you. Uh, Jesus actually speaks out against this really harshly and really bluntly in his ministry. But for the most part, the, the Jews of Judea hated the Samaritans and saw them as heretics and liars and half-breeds. And the Samaritans looks upon the Jews as uppity and self-righteous and mean. And for the most part, they didn't intermix. But now Philip, a Hellenized Jew who knows what it means to be culturally pushed to the outside, is scattered from his home church because of persecution and ends up in Samaria. And he begins to preach the gospel. And it works. And it takes root. And God moves in power. And the text ends today by telling us that this city was full of joy. Now guys, we'll come back to this, but my goodness, can we just sit in this truth for a second? The loss and suffering of the Jerusalem church ends up in the joy and freedom of the Samaritan church. Can we just sit in that for a moment? The suffering and the loss in Jerusalem plants the seeds of the joy and freedom amongst the Samaritans. I think this wonderful story is really, it really tells us four important things about the relationship the Christian has to suffering. So I'm going to take us through these one by one and just kind of talk about this for a minute. We'll just see what God does with this. I think the first thing this text tells us is that the suffering of believers shows God's sovereignty over both curse and over Satan himself. The suffering of believers shows God's sovereignty over the curse and over Satan. On the surface, 
It seems like suffering, opposition, persecution, that these things should show the opposite of that, right? I mean, isn't this Satan? Isn't this sin? Isn't this the curse getting their digs in against God? Isn't this their victory? But what we see time and time again is that God uses suffering and opposition to ultimately further his kingdom and draw more people back to life and to freedom and to him and to show his power over sin than would have happened if the opposition and suffering never happened in the first place. I mean, think about this for a moment. Back at the very beginning of Acts, go back to Acts chapter 1, as Jesus was ascending into heaven, what was the last commandment he gave to his followers? I'll read it to you. He said this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus laid out a very specific map of evangelism and kingdom advancement that would happen for his church. Now, just a couple days before our text, that wasn't really happening. (laughs) In fact... I think this part's really interesting to note. You know, there were, there were thousands of people visiting Jerusalem because of the Pentecost holiday. And so a good number of those early believers, early converts, were from the surrounding areas. And yet the, the narrative kind of plays out as though once everyone sees how the Spirit starts working and sees this new life and this new fellowship, they all just kind of hang out. And who wouldn't? They're seeing miracles happen. They're seeing the fellowship of the Spirit. They're seeing the power of the kingdom. And so they all just go, I just want to keep doing this thing as long as I can keep doing it. Because God's plan from day one was for the gospel to leave Jerusalem, to go out to the whole world. But why would the early Christian experiencing all these amazing things go anywhere? Kingdom life is wonderful. Why would you want to leave that family, that joy, that connection? Well, suffering provided a really good reason to leave. And look what happens. The gospel is preached. The church bears witness to Jesus in Judea and Samaria. And Philip, a a Hellenized Jew, who understood what it meant to be on the outside, preaches the freedom of Christ to those who spent generations on the outside. And the dead are brought back to life. This suffering did not upset God's plans. It advanced God's plans. God is sovereign over Satan and over the curse. And there is nothing that sin can do to thwart God's plans. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. And this brings us to the second point. It's simply this. We see in this text that suffering advances the kingdom of God. And we've already said this, but I think it's important to say it again. The suffering and loss of the church in Jerusalem becomes the life and freedom of the church in Samaria. I don't think we can overstate this. God used the suffering of his church, whom he loves, to bring the gospel to people who desperately needed it. You see, God's people, those who are truly God's people, they preach his gospel wherever they go. Wherever they end up, the gospel comes off of their lips. We have the Spirit of God indwelling within us, so we take him with us wherever we go. 
So suffering scatters God's people. It also scatters the gospel message. People who would never hear the gospel while Philip was waiting tables and serving widows in Jerusalem now hear it from his very lips as persecution drives him to them. Now, that may sound cruel to some of you. I hope you're thinking through that. I mean, we just said God is sovereign, so why does he have to use suffering to get the message there? Couldn't he just use another less suffering-centric method to expand his gospel? Of course he could. Of course he could. And he does. He uses all sorts of tools, all sorts of methods to advance his kingdom. But this is the problem. Suffering is a wonderful tool for advancing the kingdom. It's a wonderful tool not just because of the kingdom, not just because of how it benefits the Samaritans, not just because of how it gets the message out, but suffering is a wonderful tool because it advances the kingdom and it benefits those who are suffering. This persecution benefits Philip as much as it benefits the Samaritans. Which brings us to this third point. Suffering shows the Christian just how little we actually need this world. And if you want to add a parenthesis onto the end of that, shows us how little we even want this world. Suffering, according to the scripture, is a gift. Brothers and sisters like Philip lost everything in the first great persecution. They lost jobs. Property were seized. People were arrested, beaten, and killed. They lost friendships, relationships, family members. Here Philip is, living in a land that isn't his home, amongst the people he doesn't really know. He has objectively, by every earthly stance, lost a lot. And yet, in Christ, he has lost nothing. And I want you to hear this. When Paul himself was facing his potential death because of his faith, he told the Philippian church this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. One of Paul's most famous lines, one of the most famous lines in the book of Philippians, but immediately after that line, Paul says this, which shall I choose? I can't can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Guys, as Paul is reflecting on his own impending death, he genuinely doesn't know whether he'd rather live or die. And no, this isn't because he's clinically depressed. Although that may have played into it, I don't actually know. But it's not what's happening here. It's because for Paul, his life is so genuinely centered around the person and work of Jesus that when he looks at his own life and reflects, he realizes his life is all about Jesus. So more life means more service to Jesus and more proclamation of the gospel of Jesus and more time loving the people of Jesus. And death, well, that just means being with Jesus face to face. So which would he choose? Beloved, I want you to hear this. 
Because this is one of those things that we all know in our heads, that it's so easy to sing in a song or post on a social media post, but I want us, I want us to sit in this for a moment. Beloved of Jesus, the world has nothing to offer you. It has nothing to offer you. The most amazing blessings and gifts in this life pale in comparison to the eternity that we have been given with Jesus in his church. The blessings that we live in now, all the good things of life, job, success, family, love, all those things, yes, amen, celebrate them and enjoy them. Enjoy them. But they are they're fast food burgers next to the seven-course meal of the promise of eternity. They pale in comparison. They're wonderful. They're good. Celebrate them. But don't let them somehow distract you from the real gift, the real promise you have been given in Christ, which is that God, the God of the universe, the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, knows you and knows you intimately and knows every piece of you. He made you and designed you and created you and keeps you alive and he loves you. And he loves you deeply and passionately. And he made you for more than 60, 70, 80, 90 years on earth. He made you for eternity with him. He made you for life and joy and freedom and productivity and godliness and holiness with him forever. Forever. That is the promise he has made to you. And the Holy Spirit living within you, that's the, that's the deposit that guarantees that promise. He has said, I gave you my spirit. I will not forsake you. You are mine. I will be, you'll be with me and with our family forever. So yes, yes, enjoy every good gift. But see those gifts for what they are. And this is why suffering can be such a gift. Because when suffering comes about and persecution and oppression and bad things happen, and your gifts are taken away, and you're stripped away of all the trappings of a blessed and wondrous life. And all you have left is Jesus. You will see, beloved, that you have lost nothing. That you have lost nothing. That to have Christ, to have him as your very own, is to have everything. Is to have everything your heart desires. Everything you were built for. Philip lost nothing. Because even in Samaria, he still has Jesus. And he still has the promise of Christ. He still has his ultimate possession. Which perfectly leads us to the fourth and final truth I want to talk about with suffering. And that's this. Beloved, suffering allows us to be more like Jesus. When we suffer loss and opposition and persecution for the kingdom, to put it simply, we are being like Jesus. Beloved, Jesus suffered that other people might receive blessing. 
I mean, this is the very heart of his ministry. He suffered immeasurable loss that you and I might have life and joy and freedom and forgiveness. This is the gift of the gospel. It's freedom in Christ. It's his death and our life. It's, it's his holiness given to us. It's his suffering and our gain. This is the very story of the gospel that Jesus did this for us, for you and for me. We ought not be surprised then when he allows us the privilege of doing the same thing for others. In fact, one might say we ought to be honored by that. The Apostle Peter said this in his letter to the church about persecution. He said, servants, you should be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to good and gentle masters, but also to unjust ones. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good, and then you suffer for that good and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. He left you an example so that you might follow in his very footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might not die, we might die to sin and might live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd, to the overseer of your very soul. Do you hear this? We are given the privilege of walking in his steps. Jesus told us this, this very same truth. He said, he said, it is enough for you to be like your teacher. Beloved, our teacher suffered loss to bless others. This was the life and ministry of Jesus. Hear me when I say this. God always blesses that the blessing might overflow to others. Always. The blessing never stops with you. It always continues. It always multiplies. This is, this is a fundamental truth of the way God engages his creation. He blesses the blessing might overflow and continue. Jesus suffered loss to bless you. We can all acknowledge that, right? You, beloved of Jesus, if you are in Christ and have received salvation in him, have been given the most amazing blessing in all of existence. The creator God of the universe died to forgive you, took on your sin and gave you his righteousness, made a way for you from death to life. This is the most amazing blessing in all of existence. You have been given an amazing gift and hear me, beloved of Jesus, that gift does not stop with you. Blessing does not terminate on you. You are blessed to bless. We get to be like Jesus. We get to forsake this world and forsake our own comforts that others might be blessed. 
We get to be like Jesus. What a gift. What an invitation. And yet, we need to acknowledge that this, this is the cost of discipleship. This is the cost of following Jesus. Jesus himself warned. He said, count the cost before you follow me. To follow me is not to, to follow Jesus, is not to, to hoard blessings for yourself. It is not to live into the comforts and promises of this world. It's to take up your cross daily. Now that, that phrase is lost on us because the cross is so deeply ingrained in our religious imagery. But Jesus said that to his followers before they ever even understood that he would be arrested and crucified. He said, to follow me is to take, take up your cross and follow after me every day. Would be the same as a pastor saying, take up upon you your electric chair. Take up upon you your guillotine or your hangman's noose or your lethal injection and follow after me. Carry your death with you. Give of yourself. See so your life as forfeit for the blessing and benefit of others. Whew. To lose our life is to gain everything. To pour ourselves out to love and serve others in the midst. Find the very lover of our soul, Jesus. Beloved of Jesus. He gave himself for you. And we get to walk in his steps. What a miracle. What a gift. Whew. I just want to think about that for a minute. I'm going to invite... Guys, come back up in just a moment. We're going to take communion. We're going to eat. We're going to drink to commemorate the death of Jesus on our behalf. That's why we have communion. When we take of the elements, we eat, we drink. Jesus himself said, this is my body, this is my blood. I'm going to invite you guys. I'm going to invite myself. Let's drink deeply of the love of our Jesus. Let's also, let's join with him to walk in our steps, walk in his steps, to pour ourselves out. I want to invite you guys, take a minute to be in prayer before we actually take these elements. I want, I want, I want us to, to center our hearts on what we're about to do. They're going to piddle through a song and give us the mood. But I want, I want you guys to take a moment and be with Jesus. I mean, talk to him honestly about this. Guys, look, I get it. I just like, you know, went ham and told y'all guys, you all need to go suffer and have a hard life. I get it. But man, this is, this is the thing we've been invited into. And Jesus told us to take this seriously. Somberly reflect on it. to choose a different kind of life. It's to choose to invest in treasures that don't rust. It's to choose to invest, yeah, in a wonderful life here, enjoying all his good gifts and worshiping him in the midst of all his privilege. But ultimately, ultimately it's a promise to eternity that this life speaks to something
set those things aside. So I want you to take a minute and be with Jesus. Talk to him about this. Ask him about this. Let the Spirit prod at you and poke at you. Let him point out the ways that you and I idolize our comfort and avoid suffering.
night he was betrayed, Jesus shared a meal with his closest friends. He connected it to the suffering that he was about to endure. He took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Beloved, take Sing, reflect on the goodness of our God before we end at our time.